Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, this great gospel prayer that has us focusing in on what prayer is all about, what prayer is all about. I received a question a couple weeks ago that I believe came from uh, one of our programs on the Our Father. I, I said something about how fasting is praying with our bodies. The question I received was, Joe, I have never heard the connection between uh, praying with our bodies. What is the best context to better understand this? And well, I want to go back to what I talked about a few weeks ago and really focus in on something here, because to say fasting is a form of prayer with the body is to really answer that question, because fasting in of itself is what? In offering to God. We define prayer as conversation with God, huh? In elevation of mind and heart and conversation with God. It is an offering of words to God. Well, we can do more than just offer words. Words are very important. We have certainly talked about that a lot here on this radio program. But we ought to consider how we can offer our very bodies as a form of prayer. And we do that best when we are conforming our sacrifice and uniting our sacrifice to the one sacrifice of Christ. So, By disciplining the flesh, we unite body and soul in a most powerful way that becomes a form of language, a language that is prayer. And again, when it is offered to the one sacrifice of Christ, it becomes a most powerful prayer. Let us never forget that to say no to one thing is always to say yes to another thing. So to say no to this meal in the spirit of sacrifice for the greater glory of God is to say yes to a most profound prayer to God. The answer to your question out there, what should we be focusing in on? Well, how we are called to unite our sufferings, how we are called to unite our sacrifices to the one sacrifice of Christ. And when we do that, our very bodies become a profound offering to God. That is a prayer. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let your very lives become a holy and acceptable offering to God, that your very lives become a holy worship to God. What is Paul talking about? Let your very lives become a prayer to God. Let everything that you say and everything you do become a prayer to God, become an offering to God. So we kickstart our program this evening with that because we are in this third petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, it was all about thy will be done, the first half of that third petition. Now I want to focus in on on earth as it is in heaven. And as I do so, 
I really want to put it in the context of this call we have to offer up our very lives. This offering that actually becomes a worship, a worship that is united to the one sacrifice of Christ. And by doing so, what are we talking about? But the Eucharist, huh? In the Catechism, we find a very important paragraph under the heading of this particular petition as it relates to the very thing we are talking about. I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is paragraph 2827. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. God listens to him. We go to John chapter 9, verse 31. John's first epistle, uh, chapter 5, verse 14. Read those verses, and you will find John saying, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. As the Catechism continues, such is the power of the church's prayer in the name of her Lord, above all in the Eucharist. There it is, above all in the Eucharist. Her prayer, that is the church's prayer, is also a communion of intercession, with the all-holy mother of God and all the saints who have been pleasing to the Lord because they willed his will alone. (laughs) There's a beautiful quote here from St. Augustine, where St. Augustine says, it would not be inconsistent with the truth to understand the words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to mean in the bride who has been betrothed, just as in the bridegroom who has accomplished the will of the Father. So my dear friends, this evening is more or less about the Eucharist, not only in that second half of the petition of on earth as it is in heaven, but what is the following petition about? Give us this day our daily bread, the stuff of the Eucharist, huh? So what's important for us to remember here as we begin a reflection into the second half of this petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that the Jews of our Lord's time would have recognized the beauty of this petition, huh? In a way that many of us today do not. All of you listeners out there, please understand, if you want to better understand sacred scripture, make sure that you roll up your sleeves and you really get into the literal sense of sacred scripture. That is, who was the audience that the author of the particular text is writing to? So, for example, if it's the Gospel of Matthew, he is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, and that audience would have been adept in understanding and knowing the Old Testament. So you have to kind of take on that mindset when you read the Gospel of Matthew. This is why the Gospel of Matthew starts with Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David because Matthew is establishing uh, Christ's lineage. So the literal sense is very important. And it's important for us here this evening, because this petition was not news with the gospel for the Jew of our Lord's time, huh? Because the people of ancient Israel considered their earthly liturgy to be a divinely inspired imitation of heavenly worship. Dr. Scott Hahn gets into this in his work that we've been going through, Understanding Our Father, Biblical Reflections on the Lord's Prayer. He highlights how both Moses and Solomon constructed God's earthly dwellings, the tabernacle and the temple, according to what? But the heavenly archetype revealed by God himself. If you were to go into uh, Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and following, this is what you find. 
uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19 and following. What's more, the prophets expressed this belief in a mystical way, huh? as they depicted the angels worshiping amid songs and trappings that were clearly recognizable from the Jerusalem temple. The hymns sung by the angels were the same songs the Levites sang before the earthly sanctuary. You see, my friends, what we are made to see is that the people of ancient Israel considered their earthly liturgy to be a divinely inspired imitation of heavenly worship. To the ancient people of God, heaven and earth were distinct, huh? distinct, but earth, and again, this is getting in the mind of, of the Jew of our Lord's time, earth traced the motions, if you will, of heaven most clearly in what? But the rites of the temple. They recognized that to worship God in this way was a profound and awesome gift, yet, yet it was still only a shadow of the angels' worship, and only a shadow of the earthly worship that would be, of course, inaugurated by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, by assuming human flesh, Jesus brings down heaven to earth. Huh? By assuming human flesh, Jesus brings down heaven to earth. He shows us what heaven looks like in the flesh. Moreover, with his very flesh, he fulfills and perfects the worship of ancient Israel. No longer must the people of God worship like they did in the Old Testament, in imitation of angels. You see, my friends, in the liturgy of the new covenant, in the mass, the renewed Israel, or we can say the new Israel, the church, worships together with the angels. In the New Testament, the book of Revelation shows us the shared liturgy of heaven and earth, huh? Around the throne of God, men and angels bow down and worship together. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 14. If you were to go to Revelation chapter 9, verse 10, an angel lifts the seer up to stand beside him. Moreover, we read that the renewed Israel is a nation of what? Priests. So that all are admitted to the holiest inner sanctum of the temple. If you were to go to the Eastern writers on the book of Revelation, you find them constantly speaking to the book of Revelation as an icon of the liturgy. You see, my friends, Christ has broken down all the barriers between man and angel, between Jew and Gentile, between priest and people. In the worship of the new covenant, it is Christ himself who now presides. Today, my dear friends, we know this worship as what? The Mass. Because it is there where Christ himself presides as high priest, right? Scott Hahn has a beautiful soundbite here. The liturgy is the manifestation in time of his perfect offering in eternity. So we are to take this truth and we are to internalize it, integrate it, and in light of it, better understand what it means to live with one foot on earth and at the same time, one foot in heaven. To live, we can say, with the end in mind. My dear friends, have you ever really thought about that? what it means to live with the end in mind. 
Well, are we not living with the end in mind when we actively participate with both mind and heart during Mass? There is no one greater place where we live with the end in mind as we worship with the end in mind. I mean, think about it, my friends. What does the word mass mean? It comes from the Latin word missio, which means to be sent forth. We worship God so that our very lives might reflect the one who we worship. And this is living with the end in mind. Amen to that. Now, since the coming of Christ, something that we have been reflecting a lot with recently during the days of Advent and Christmas, the heavenly slash earthly liturgy is the instrument par excellence of God's will, huh? It is the fullest manifestation of his kingdom. That is what that paragraph was talking about in the catechism. Nowhere else is our prayer so richly fulfilled. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then the mass, huh? Think about it. Thy kingdom come. Remember what I said about the word kingdom, that Jesus Christ is the kingdom incarnate. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a reason, my friends, why the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. Huh? What's more? What do we find in the book of Revelation? When the angels and the saints present their prayers to Almighty God, the earth quakes and the thunder peals and the angelic powers do what? They unleash war, economic depression, famine, and death upon the earth. Think about that. Scott Hahn quotes a man by the name of W.H. Alden here, who was famous for saying that poetry makes nothing happen. <laughs> Scott Hahn says, if that's so, then liturgy is certainly not what he would call poetry. <laughs> because for John the seer, the author of the book of Revelation, shows us that the prayers of the church, of the living, the dead, and all the angels direct not only the course of history, my friends, but the phenomena of nature as well. All of this is what takes place when we go to Mass. It is there where during Mass, the power of God, working through His angels and His saints, draws us deeper into His great mystery. And in so doing, my friends, draws us deeper into His will. The Eucharist makes the kingdom of God present in a new and permanent way, enabling us to do His will more perfectly. Amen to that. Now, how about this petition, give us this day our daily bread? The fourth petition, which of course naturally follows. Now, there is something to be mindful of here and something that Scott Hahn notes. There's something very childlike about the turn we take with the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Because in the first three petitions, we pray to God for the sake of His name, we pray to God for the sake of His will, and we pray to God for the sake of His what? Kingdom. Now we turn, like children, to ask Him for what? Our bread. And it is interesting to note that we ask him for food as if it already belonged to us, huh? As if he had an obligation to provide it. 
as if he were, what? Our father. Because he is our father. This is the filial boldness of what it means to be called a child of God. Remember that all-important verse in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and following. We did not receive the spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship in which we cry, what? Abba, Father. This is a bold proclamation. The gift that we've been given to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit, to cry, Abba, Father. And so we ask, and by asking, we know we shall receive. What do we read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9? For what father, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? We ask for our bread because we address father as what? Our father. What's more, it's interesting that we ask for our bread and not my bread. You see, Jesus teaches us that even when we pray in private, we do not pray alone. We pray in solidarity with all the children of God, the church of the living and the saints in heaven. And we pray for the whole church that all may have the bread they need today. This prayer is something intimate, yet something shared. It's familial. Scott Hahn notes that, you know, in the ancient world, the dispensation of daily bread was a sign of what? A kingdom's prosperity. Huh? When the nation was doing well, you see, winning its wars and selling its goods, its citizens received an ample ration of bread. What do we read in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1? Without money and without price. Even greater was Israel's vision of the ongoing banquet that would come with the reign of the anointed son of David, the Messiah. Well, you and I both know what that banquet is, but the Eucharistic banquet, God's eternal banquet. And his banquet had spiritual benefits that surpassed the most sumptuous worldly feast. My dear friends, for all the early Christian commentators, our bread meant not only their everyday material needs, but also their need for communion with God. Our bread in common speech meant the Eucharist. What is that great passage that comes to us from Acts 2, 42? And we can include in that verse 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers, and day by day attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. Huh? Beautiful. Here we see what Pope Francis calls the virtue of togetherness in the life of the church. This interpersonal communion. You know, the catechism has something important to say on this topic. I want to turn to paragraph 2833. Listen to what the catechism has to say here. Our bread is the one loaf for the many. In the Beatitudes, poverty is the virtue of sharing. It calls us to communicate and share both material and spiritual goods, not by coercion, but out of love, so that the abundance of some may remedy the needs of others. Huh? This is what Paul talks about in his second letter to the church of Corinth, if you were to go to chapter 8, verses 1 and following, 
This is what we see Paul treating this need to have an open heart to be at the service of other and to be for other in both material and spiritual needs. This is why, my friends, you've heard me talk about why the virtue of poverty is so archetypal to the spiritual life and to this call we have to evangelize and catechize, huh? Okay, so as it relates to this phrase, our daily bread. In the generation after the death of the apostles, a very important generation that is often overlooked, we find that the common practice of Christians was to receive the Eucharist every Sunday? No, every day, every day. Tertullian attests to this in North Africa, uh, St. Hippolytus in Rome, St. Cyprian of Carthage, and elsewhere speak to the importance of the Eucharistic celebration every day. Why? Because they took Christ's words seriously. Give us this day our daily bread, a prayer that should be on our lips every day. Remember that before Jesus Christ said, teach, he said, do this. And what did he tell them to do? Well, institute the Eucharist. Do this in remembrance of me. We spoke at great length recently to the powerful words that come to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 24, as well as Luke, chapter 22, verse 19, when Christ says, this is the blood of the New Testament, that the Eucharist itself is the New Testament. So yeah, it would be right to celebrate the Mass every day. Powerful stuff. Okay. It is fascinating how succinctly this petition expresses all our needs in life. And I'm just not talking about our individual life, but also our corporate life. I'm just not talking about our material needs, but of course, also our spiritual needs. St. Augustine has some important words for us here because he says that there are three levels of meaning to the bread we ask for. First, all those things that meet the wants of this life. Second, of course, what we've been talking about, the sacrament of the body of Christ, which we may daily receive. And lastly, how our spiritual food, the bread of life, is Jesus himself. Our bodies hunger after food, but what we are always made to see is how our souls hunger after God. God willed both hungers to be satisfied in himself. And he fulfills both hungers because he is almighty, our Father who is in heaven, but come down to us in the Eucharist. Brothers and sisters, we pray to the God who loves us so much that he has counted the hairs of our head. This is the God who in Psalm chapter 78, verse 19, reminds us, spread a table in the wilderness, the God who drew water from a dry desert rock. A child trusts his father to provide for his needs as they arise. A little child has no clear concept of the future. And so what does that mean? Well, he doesn't worry about tomorrow, right? You see, my friends, from beginning to end and everywhere in between, what the Lord's Prayer teaches us 
is to simply desire a child's life of what? But humility, trust, and dependence on God. Is this not what the first beatitude is about? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in God. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who trust. Blessed are those who depend on God for everything. What is the disposition of a child? Is it not arms outstretched? And does not Christ on the cross reveal to us what it means to be a child? As he dies with his arms outstretched, this is why the crucifix is an icon of sonship. We look at the crucifix and we say what? Death equals life. How? Because if we are going to die to self, we must have arms outstretched because life is found in being a child of God. We ask not for riches, but only for what we need for the day. We are confident that God will provide. Children have an important and valuable lesson for us grown-ups to learn. <laughs> we pride ourselves on self-reliance. We tend to want to control our lives and even the lives of others. But what does St. Augustine tell us? No matter how rich a man is on earth, he is still God's beggar. Accumulation does not define doing God's will, but only by praying on bended knee will we come to understand God's will. The first beatitude speaks to the Old Testament understanding of the anawim of God. The Hebrew word anawim translates as one who is bent over, one who is on bended knee. We are called to be poor in spirit because we are called to be on bended knee, because we are called to give glory to God in all that we do and follow His will, not ours. Remember what we talked about last week, thy will be done. It is not about the ego drama, the play that we write, the play that we direct, the play that we script, and oh, most importantly, the play that we star in, but no, the theodrama how God seeks us out and invites us in to his play, his story, a story that draws us into the inner recesses of the very life of God. And oh, what a story it is. And oh, what an adventure it is. Saying yes to God, my dear friends, is a great adventure. You've heard me say before that the one thing that every saint has in common is yes, Jesus first, and that virtue of poverty, of being dependent upon God in all things. So, as St. Cyril of Alexandria would remind us, for to ask is not the part of those who have, but of those rather who are in need and cannot do without. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer as we call upon God as Father, praying our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.